0: On March 30th, 1882, Tucson's Arizona Daily Star newspaper ran a piece by its editor, L.C. Hughes, decrying the situation in neighboring Cochise County. It was one of several that Hughes ran in his paper, commenting on lawlessness and the breakdown of peace and order in the region. He wrote, quote, The officials of Cochise County, with all the available strength they could muster, seemed to avail nothing in putting down the bloodthirsty class infesting the county. End quote. Further down in the piece, he commented, quote, A lot of loose, marauding thieves are scouring the country, killing good industrious citizens for plunder. The officials are out in every direction, but nothing is accomplished. End quote. Then, after remarking that all of this sounded exactly like New Mexico or Texas in the past, he comes out with his recommendation, quote, we can see no more speedy, certain, and effective remedy than the organization of a body of rangers with the authority to settle the whole business with the least possible expense to the territory. End quote. Over the last several episodes, as we've delved into the sordid business surrounding the gunfight at the OK Corral, which, remember, is actually the shootout across from Abby Borland's dress shop, We touched on the Cowboys and the rampant cattle wrestling that was happening across southern Arizona and New Mexico at the time. But here's the thing. The Cowboys aren't name-checked in Hughes' editorial at all. There are general comments about specific acts of banditry, but by and large, the whole wrestling aspect isn't touched. Who Hughes does target, however, is a man who even then was leading a small group of followers on a murderous spree across southern Arizona, and not giving a darn about what the law was. And it's the actions of this scoundrel, one Wyatt Earp, that was causing concern for Tombstone, Cochise County, the whole territory of Arizona, and the nation at large. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. (music) Episode 90, The OK Corral, Part 8, The Vendetta Ride. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we covered the aftermath of the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, which included the herbs being cleared in court, but not in the court of public opinion. The Cowboys had struck back, and struck back hard, making Virgil into a one-armed cripple and killing Morgan outright. And this was really the last straw for Wyatt, who decided that it was time that he struck back as well. But first, there was some family business to be taken care of. Morgan's body was being shipped to the rest of the Earp clan, which was now stationed in Colton, California. Virgil and his wife Allie were heading that way too, seeing as he was now out of the job and still needed to recuperate. Over the course of the next couple weeks, all the brothers' wives would be sent west too for their safety. And this right here is also the last time that Maddie, Wyatt's common-law wife, would ever see him. When next he went to California, it was not to see her But we'll wrap up that thread at the end of today's episode. The train ride, however, turned into a chance to conduct some other family business. Because waiting in Tucson was none other than Frank Stilwell, cowboy, stagecoach robber, and possible assassin of Morgan, and, wait for it, Ike Clanton. Wyatt knew an attack on his family while they were changing trains in Tucson was possible, so he and the posse he had gathered made sure to be ready. And by ready, I mean armed to the teeth. Bob Paul, Pima County Sheriff and a friend of Wyatt, would later testify that Stilwell was seen at the station on top of a nearby gravel cart trying to peer into the windows of the passenger car to see if he could get the drop on Virgil. Now, a more likely story is he was seen loitering around the train station. Either way, Wyatt spotted Stilwell and a chase ensued along the tracks. According to Wyatt, he caught up with Stilwell, who confessed to everything. He had been in on the shooting of Morgan, along with notorious cowboys Curly Bill and Johnny Ringo. It's more than likely this was another later invention by Wyatt, and that he and his posse just shot Stilwell down without a question. Wyatt Earp historian Scott Dyke adds the grisly detail that the coroner's inquest declared Stilwell as, quote, The most shot-up man ever seen. In his later years, Wyatt would proudly recall blowing Stillwell away without the least hint of remorse for it. But wait, you say, wasn't Ike Clanton also there? What happened to him? Well, yes, yes, he was there. But again, in Dyke's words, he saw the well-armed Earp party and did what came naturally to him. He lit. Out. With this revenge murder done, White and his posse returned to Tombstone. The coroner's inquest had found them guilty of Stilwell's killing, but it didn't matter. White had been given the U.S. Deputy Marshal gig, so he considered himself on the side of the law. But, again quoting Dyke because he puts it so well, the warrants he was given were, in his mind, hunting licenses. He and his posse were back in Tombstone on March 21st, 1882, just five days after Morgan's death, getting ready to leave again to do even more hunting. However, a warrant had been sworn out against them for the killing of Stilwell, and it fell to everyone's least favorite sheriff, Johnny Behan, to arrest Wyatt. In a funny little bit of I don't know what... The telegraph operator who took the news of the arrest warrant was actually a friend of Wyatt's, and let's just say he dawdled a little bit before passing it along to Johnny. However, he did eventually have to turn it over, and when he did, Wyatt and his gang still hadn't left town. So Johnny in a small bit of backup found them at a local saloon, where he announced that he wanted to see Wyatt. Completely over-dealing with Johnny Bean at this point, Wyatt simply remarked that if Bean wasn't careful, he would see him once too often. Then he and his men just mounted their horses and rode away, leaving Johnny red in the face. He hadn't actually, you know, tried to stop them. In my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion from what I've read, Johnny was never good at the actual law enforcement part of his job. And this incident just shows one more time that he just sort of hung around impotently instead of springing into action. At least after this last brush with Wyatt, he did do something. If Wyatt had a gang, then he could have one too. Here is where things get personal, however. Because Johnny didn't just put together a posse. He pecked a lot of hard-riding cowboys, including Johnny Ringo and Finn Clanton. These were men who had a personal beef against the Earps. Ringo and Clanton may have had a hand in Morgan's death, and were more than willing to use the thin veneer of the law to shoot the Earps down. So, yeah, way to take the high road there, Johnny. Meanwhile, Wyatt's posse struck again on Wednesday, March 22nd. Riding into the Dragoon Mountains, they came upon the woodcutting camp operated by Pete Spencer, the man that had beaten his wife to try and silence her about his role in killing Morgan, only to have her go straight to the authorities. Fortunately for Pete, he wasn't in the camp at the time. However, a man by the name of Florentino Cruz was. Cruz was thought to be the man Mrs. Spencer had called Indian Charlie, which meant he was also on Wyatt's hit list. And again, in later years, White claimed that Cruz rolled on his cowboy buddies about the plot to kill Morgan. When asked what the Earps had ever done to him, Cruz simply said that the prominent cowboys Curly Bill, Johnny Ringo, Frank Stilwell, and Ike Clanton were his friends. At this, White claims he lost his temper and shot Cruz. As always, take whatever White tells you with a giant grain of salt. When Cruz's body was found, the coroner determined that he had been shot with several different weapons and that at least one wound was received post-mortem. After the killing of Cruz, which really showed everyone that Wyatt wasn't just enforcing the law, he sent two of his posse to Tombstone to collect some money. Revenge, it turns out, has a price, but Wyatt wasn't footing the bill. None other than Wells Fargo was bankrolling him. From the company's perspective, Wyatt's revenge quest lined up neatly with their desire to take out the lawless rabble that was in the habit of holding up their stagecoaches. Besides, Wyatt and Morgan had been shotgun writers for Wells Fargo at one point, and both had been darn good at their jobs. Though the money they funneled was not directly reported on the books, I mean, where's the column for revenge fund, the money and support was real enough. Another donator was E.B. Gage, a Tombstone Mine owner who was a definite supporter of Wyatt. But these two were the exception rather than the rule. By and large, public opinion had turned against Wyatt, and newspaper accounts of his actions were less than flattering. Author Jeff Gwynn states that Wyatt's actions were causing attention at the national level, and not the kind that the town really wanted to see. The Los Angeles Times covered the whole affair as the Earp Vendetta. And in the stories that were reaching the national media, Wyatt and his posse were almost interchangeable with the cowboys they were riding against. Both sides were portrayed as lawless gunslingers that might actually wind up getting rid of each other. The San Francisco Exchange wrote, quote, "...it may fortunately happen that the slaughter on both sides will leave but a few survivors and a big funeral." With the herbs and cowboys to furnish the remains, would be the lifting of a great weight from the minds of the citizens of Tombstone. End quote. And all of this was both headache and heartburn for Frederick A. Triddle, the newly appointed governor of the Arizona Territory, who was taking over for the continually absent John C. Fremont. Triddle wrote to President Chester A. Arthur that something simply had to be done about the cowboy lawlessness that was running amok in that part of the territory. And the president, alarmed by Triddle's reports, asked Congress for an exception to the posse Comitatus statute that kept him from sending federal troops. When Congress wouldn't go that far, Arthur threatened on May 3, 1882 to enact martial law in the territory, something that alarmed people across Arizona. The funny thing was, by the time that Triddle and Arthur were getting heavily invested in the problem, the Earp Vendetta, such as it was, was pretty much over. But to discuss that, let's hop back to March 24th. White and his posse were holed up in the Whetstone Mountains, west of Tombstone, where they were heading toward a place called Iron Springs, or sometimes Mescal Springs, for a convenient place to water their animals and wait for the money from Wells Fargo to come in. The only problem was that it was a very convenient place to water animals, because Wyatt and his posse ran into another group doing just that. This one, though, was full of cowboys headed by Curly Bill, the man that Wyatt had basically blackmailed to expose the fraudulent sheriff's election back in 1880. And oh, the people that Wyatt had run into, read, Killed, had also fingered Curly Bell as being in on the shooting of Morgan and Virgil. Now, this may come as a complete and utter surprise to you, but yeah, the bullets started flying immediately. Wyatt's posse actually began to retreat, but he had spotted Curly Bell in the mix. So he stood his ground, made sure to aim his shotgun just right, and soon Curly Bell was missing most of his chest. Despite a hail of bullets around him, Wyatt was eventually able to pull back, and he rejoined his men without taking on any injuries, which I have to say is quite the impressive feat. Now, I will add here that as rumors of this confrontation begin to filter down into Tombstone, another rumor soon took off, that Curly Bill had not in fact died. Much like Elvis, people over the years began to report that they had seen the cowboy alive and well in this or that locale, though really all those anecdotes have the credibility of your average Elvis sighting. Dyke calls these stories dubious at best, and that he agrees with Wyatt, George Parsons diary, and the dying admission of a cowboy who had been at the Springs shootout. Currently, Bill Brochius met his end there, at the watering hole. And this might sound anti but that's really the end of the Vendetta ride. Though a Johnny bean led posse chased them around for their involvement in the killing of Frank Stilwell, Wyatt and his posse were never caught. Part of this appears to have been some lackadaisical pursuing on Bean's part, something that we see evidence of time and time again. Wyatt and his group eventually rode out of Arizona into New Mexico by mid-April 1882, and then up into Colorado. Gwynne mentions that Wyatt had to stop briefly at Fort Grant for some business, where the commanding officer told him that he would have to arrest him, but then conveniently didn't see Wyatt for the rest of his time at the fort. Triddle asked to extradite Wyatt and his whole crew, but the governor of Colorado— possibly helped along by the intervention of Bat Masterson, declined the request. It would be some time before Wyatt would enter Arizona again. Now, as seems to be the standard with all tellings of the story of the OK Corral, it's time to do a quick summation of the fates of all our players. First up is Virgil who would continue on through various boom camps throughout California, Colorado, Arizona, and Nevada, and even went into some small law enforcement roles, despite the loss of use in his left arm. And now, this is a fun little tidbit. In 1898, he received a letter from a woman in Portland, Oregon, who had read his name in association with accounts of the shootout and now had to ask, had he married a woman named Ellie Rysdam back in Illinois before the Civil War? I know it was a long time ago that we covered this, but yes, that was his first wife. The one that he didn't bother writing to after entering the Civil War, and the one his in-laws had lied to about him being dead and then absconded to Washington. This woman was actually his daughter from that brief marriage, a fact that delighted Virgil, though he had never actually sought out what happened to her mother. After Virgil died of pneumonia in 1906 in Goldfield, Nevada... His remains were shipped to be buried by his daughter in Oregon. Next, we turn to Doc Holliday, who is always good for a story. Rumor has it that he and Wyatt had a falling out toward the end of the Vendetta ride for reasons that are not quite understood, though Gwyn speculates that it probably had something to do with Josephine Marcus, because what doesn't? Being Doc Holliday, he started to drift around to places in Colorado such as Leadville and Denver where he continued drinking and gambling, or sometimes gambling and drinking. But moving away from the dry air of Arizona was apparently not good for him, as his tuberculosis came back in full force. Dyke here adds that movies usually portray Holliday as a wheezing, coughing man, but while in Tombstone his tuberculosis was actually in remission. So, sorry Val Kilmer, but you were still a great Huckleberry. The Vendetta ride and change of elevation in Colorado had taken its toll on him. He had lost a shocking amount of weight. Josephine Marcus would write that she and Wyatt encountered him in a Denver hotel in 1885 and were saddened by his thin, delicate appearance and constant cough. The only upside to this meeting is that Wyatt and Doc apparently patched up whatever disagreement had come between them. In October 1887, Holiday relocated to a hotel in Glenwood Springs to avail himself of a hot springs there. The Hotel bellboys recounted that every morning they would serve the ailing man his favorite breakfast, a bottle of whiskey, for which he would tip a dollar. Holiday died on November 8, 1887, at the ripe age of 36. But he probably would have taken some comfort in the fact that he still managed to die after Ike Clanton. The cowboy, who you can lay a lot of the carnage at the feet of, had moved with his brother Finn to Apache County in 1882, where they quickly fell into their old ways, and that is, you know, rustling. In May 1887, the brothers were cornered after a pursuit, with Finn choosing to surrender. He would be sent to the territorial jail in Yuma for a decade, but Ike either tried to run or went for his gun, and, well, either way, he didn't quite make it. One strange twist in this case is Johnny Ringo, the cowboy ringleader who had almost stolen the election for county sheriff in 1880, and who was something of a boogeyman during the whole time the Earps were in Tombstone. He would actually be found dead with a gunshot wound to his head in July 1882 near Turkey Creek on the east side of the Chiricahua Mountains. Officially, the death was chalked up to suicide, though the body wasn't in the best of shape when it was found. This has led to a whole host of conspiracy theories about who actually did Johnny Ringo in, but I'm not going to touch any of those except to say that at a certain point, Wyatt of course began taking credit for it. But you can guess how much stock I put into that particular boast. While we're on the subject of Wyatt's enemies, I guess we should turn our focus to Johnny Behan, his rival in politics and love. Possibly hurt by the fact that he was pretty much inert during the whole shooting and Vedetta ride affair, he lost his bid for a full term as Cochise County Sheriff. And Adding insult to injury, he was replaced by a Republican. He would also get into some hot water later on when some government funds he handled came up as missing, but eventually all charges were dropped against him. Johnny would keep on looking for the next political opportunity and would spend some time as the warden of the Yuma Territorial Prison, among other positions. He would eventually die of Bright's disease in 1912 and is now buried in Tucson's Evergreen Cemetery. Other players include Big Nose Kate, aka Mary Cummings, aka Mary Horney, aka Doc Holliday's Main Squeeze. After Doc's death, she would spend time in Globe, where she claimed to be a waitress and investor in a hotel. Dyke speculates she may have returned to her old ways as a prostitute. She married a blacksmith in 1888, but that fell apart because, like Holiday, he was a hopeless alcoholic. Later, she hooked up with a miner named J.J. Howard and would spend the next 30 years of her life with him. Big Nose Kate died in 1940, just shy of her 90th birthday. As I mentioned several episodes ago, she claimed in her later years to have married Holiday in Georgia, though that is far from proven. She even wrote memoirs to capitalize on her famous connection, but they never sold. But the biggest loser here was Maddie Blaylock, once Maddie Earp. Wyatt had sent her west with the rest of the family during his vendetta ride, and she waited in California for him. However, he never came. At least, not for her. Realizing that she had been cast aside, she drifted east again into Arizona, where for a short time she was living in Globe at the hotel where Big Nose Kate had a stake. Which is to say, she also probably went back to her old ways of entertaining men for a living. However, after Kate moved, Maddie drifted to the town of Pinal on the San Carlos Reservation, where she indulged heavily in alcohol and laudanum, basically liquid opium, which were common escapes for prostitutes at the time. Dyke points out that she was battling these addictions for years, thanks to pain coming from dental issues. Aged beyond her years, and relying only on the generosity of some male friends, Maddie died in squalor on July 3, 1888 at the age of 38. The coroner declared her death as the result of an overdose, though Gwyn speculates that a better ruling could have been suicide. On her last day on Earth, Maddie told a friend that Wyatt Earp had wrecked her life. While one sister did admit that Maddie had a bad temper, her whole family blamed Wyatt for her early death. Which, I guess, brings us to the most famous participant in this little drama. Wyatt eventually made his way to San Francisco in late 1882, where he connected once again with Josephine Marcus. Despite the 12-year difference in their ages, her demanding demeanor and his stubborn nature, the pair would stay together for more than 40 years. The couple moved around quite a bit seeking their fortune, winding up at various times in San Diego, Idaho, San Francisco, Arizona, after all the heat had died down, and eventually Nome, Alaska. All was in the name of chasing wealth, which he came close to several times, including while dabbling in real estate in San Francisco or running a saloon in Nome. One fun anecdote about his life that often gets overlooked is that he became something of a celebrity referee for a big boxing match in San Francisco in 1896. But in the ninth round, Wyatt disqualified the boxer that had been winning the entire match because of a low blow that was miraculously only seen by Wyatt, and the boxer wound up on the mat. This controversial call was part of the decision for he and Josephine to get out of town and head up to the Klondike. Eventually, after the dawn of the 20th century, they returned to California, settling down in Los Angeles. For the next 20-some-odd years, he would put out feedlers and work with various individuals to tell his story. This included the burgeoning film industry and why it could claim to be an acquaintance of Tom Mix, John Ford, and Charlie Chaplin. His first few attempts at an autobiography didn't really turn out, and he finally agreed to meet with Stuart Lake. I mentioned Lake at the beginning of this story as the real maker of Wyatt's myth. He found that Wyatt was not very talkative, with a very slippery memory and no talent for storytelling. It may have almost come as a relief for Lake when he found himself finishing up the work after Wyatt passed away. The end came for Wyatt Earp on January 13, 1929, at the age of 80. He died in his Los Angeles bungalow from a urinary infection. Josephine outlived him, not dying until 1944 at the age of 83. In the meantime, she took to squabbling with Lake about what he had written, wanting to make sure Wyatt's memory was as squeaky clean as possible. That meant making sure that both she and Maddie were conveniently not mentioned in the narrative. She also pushed her own memoirs, which, in Dyke's words, quote, conveniently avoided her role as Helen of Troy in Tombstone, end quote. But the last character, whose sort of end we need to chronicle, is Tombstones itself. In March 1881, six months before the infamous shootout that made the town famous, miners in the Sulphuret Mine struck water roughly 500 feet down. At first, this was good news. Remember from way back in episode 83 that water was in scarce supply on Goose Flats where the town grew up. It also meant plenty of water to run the mills that kept the silver flowing out of Tombstone. But the mines kept getting deeper, and more and more investment was needed to remove the suddenly very inconvenient water. Pumps were running 24 hours a day in the Grand Central Company's tunnels, clearing out 500,000 gallons per day and when those pumps burned out, the owner spent $200,000 on Cornish pumps that could suck up three times as much water. But another issue soon came into play. Falling silver prices. The precious metal went from roughly $1.29 per ounce at the end of the 1870s to 63 cents per ounce in 1886. In response, in 1884, mines dropped their wages from $4 a day to $3 a day. Miner strikes erupted as a result, and the mine owners, thinking the workforce was bluffing, actually shut down their operations. This only had the result of damaging Tombstone's economy. Eventually, out of work and running low on everything, the miners had to cave, but the damage was pretty much done. Most of the smaller mines simply went out of business and never started back up again. Everything the strike didn't do, bad luck made up for. On May 12th, 1886, a fire erupted at the Grand Central Mine, taking out the $350,000 in pumps and hoists that kept the water back. And that, right there, was the death knell for the boomtown of Tombstone. Though we know that the actual town carries on to this day, proudly bearing the moniker of The Town Too Tough to Die. But most of the prominent citizens had left years before the mines finally collapsed. George Parsons, that great first-person source of life in the town, held on as late as 1887. He left for Los Angeles shortly after making the entry of quote, town going, end quote. So we're left with a question. What are we to make of this little drama. I kind of agree with state historian Thomas Sheridan, who says that, quote, mythologized beyond recognition, the sordid little saga of Tombstone unfolded in a haze of gunpowder, mysterious suicides, and alcoholic fumes, end quote. Dyke throws in his two cents that had he lived to see the movies and books about him, Wyatt would have been astonished at his own notoriety but mostly sorry that he didn't manage to capitalize on it. In my mind at least, White Earp is not a hero, nor really is he a villain. Refusing to be the leading man that so many movies want him to be, he was just simply a man, trying his best to get ahead in the world. He was not a great man. His treatment of Maddie, his temper, his thirst for vengeance, and his misspent youth teaches us that. But neither was he a truly evil man. He was a good law enforcement officer in some really tough places. Once again, I'm going to turn to Sheridan, who sums up Wyatt and the gunfight, albeit a bit pessimistically like this. Quote, he and his brothers found more than they'd bargained for in Tombstone, which turned Wyatt into a legend, Virgil into a cripple, and Morgan into a corpse. It was a high price to pay, but not a surprising one. Places like Tombstone epitomized the frontier at its worst. A rootless community where people risk everything, their lives, their fortunes, the land itself, for short term gain. End quote. And he may have a point, but be that as it may, with all the mythology, drama, and politics wrapped up into this one set piece, we will never really stop talking about those 30 seconds in that random alley across from a dress shop in that obscure little corner of southern Arizona. Except you know, right now, because that's the end of the line for this little mini-series about the gunfight at the OK Corral. We have places to go and people to see as the history of Arizona continues ever forward. So please join me next week as we pick up other lingering narrative threads, starting with statewide politics and then eventually coming back to that darned Apache renegade, Geronimo. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, And you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.